Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, the Brexit podcast that hears Jacob Rees-Mogg's promise to flee the country if Brexit is thwarted and thinks, why wait? Get on Expedia right away, give us all a treat. With me this week are two of our regulars, Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk. Hi, Ian. What's been keeping politics.co.uk busy? Hello, hello. Um, well, I don't know, not very much. But can I, can I talk about, because it's not going to be in our news bit, so can I just chuck in a bit of free news? Yep. Yes. Um, which is that David Davis was this morning, we record on Wednesday, um, in front of the Brexit Select Committee, and confirmed that we were going to be able to amend the motion. That's the motion they're going to put to Parliament at the end of uh, the negotiations. That's different because his department were insisting that would not be the case up until now. It, I've now read a couple of things that suggest... They may not be giving this up. It may be actually that they've discovered that it was going to be constitutionally quite difficult for them to prevent any of that happening. This is quite a a significant moment, I think, because it opens up a possible legal mechanism for us to have another referendum or for the opposition to force the government to go back to the table to negotiate again. It it also makes it more likely, by the way, that the withdrawal will, will pass... Because you can have guys who go, well, I would only vote for this on the basis that I can put this amendment on it. But suddenly it was just one of those moments of like, oh, David Davis just committed some serious news out here. And, <laughs> and it seems to me like that really does change the stakes of the game. And Peter Collins, our crack freelance Brexologist. Hi, Peter. What's been occupying you this week? Well, uh, all this Windrush stuff reminded me of a story my late mother once told me that I was brought into the world with the help of a Jamaican midwife. That plus the news on uh, this week of all the the sort of brexitus of european nurses has made me wonder when i get to the other end of my life will there be anybody else left <laughs> to treat me well i think we're going to need we're going to need the robots by then i think <laughs> <laughs> we also have a very special guest who's had a particularly high profile recently leading the assault on the government over the disgraceful windrush scandal David Lammy's been MP for Tottenham since 2000. He served in the Cabinet under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. He's currently a star backbencher, speaking passionately about issues such as the Grenfell Tower fire, knife crime, drug policy, anti-Semitism and, of course, Brexit. He's also a master of Twitter, delivering expert smackdowns to racist trolls. Hello, David. Welcome to Maniacs. Hi. Thanks for coming Great in. Great to be here. <laughs> Read, reading your stuff and, and, and seeing you speak about the Windrush scandal, it seems like it's visibly upset you that quite apart from the political implications, what this means for the government, etc., these are very painful personal stories you've been dealing with. Very, but it, it upsets me because it's sort of, um, it's Britain not wanting to face its history. And let's be absolutely blunt about this. Caribbean people of African descent exist because of British history. We were brought from Africa um, across the Atlantic to the Caribbean to work as slaves. Um, when slavery was over... We became part of the British Empire. We became British subjects. Um, And then after the Second World War, we were encouraged and invited to come and help rebuild Britain. So we were British. We were British subjects. That's the basis on which my parents came. So it's, it's painful and hurtful to have this discussion 70 years after coming here, not just on the basis of that 70 years, but on the basis of our history a history that in Britain you tend to be familiar with in relation to African Americans in the United States, but we tend to want to fudge over mm. <laughs> uh, our imperial past and, and slavery. And, and, and if we do talk about it, we talk about Wilberforce and the abolition. We abolished it. You know, we, um, but, but, but it's important to say it's painful for us because, you know, on the backs of our labour, much was built in this country uh, in modern times and going back a few hundred years. And so 
um, it's been it's been a very painful, painful period. Not just the stories, terrible stories of hardship because of policy decisions, but because of that history. And I mean, a couple of things that, that Brexiters have, have claimed in the past is one that a post-EU Britain would be more hospitable to immigrants from the rest of the world, and two that it would can be trusted to, you know, handle the the citizenship status of the EU citizens that are currently in Britain. Do you think that this scandal kind of gives the lie to both of those? Claims? Absolutely. I mean, there's so many threads. Of course, there's the threads for the poor EU nationals. You know, if this is how they treated um, uh, their former subjects, wow, how are they going to treat us? And of course, EU nationals now are looking at this deeply, deeply worried. And, uh, you know, they'll have to be really, and, and I will be, really forensic about promises that are made, promises that basically can be turned over um, very easily by a domestic government. That's what's basically happened to Windrush. But the other story at the centre of this is that huge debate in Britain about whether we are truly a global Britain or whether we are Little Englanders. And at the heart of this Windrush story is basically a kind of Little England mentality that has a limited idea of what it means to be British or what it means to be English. And that does not include... Uh, or it hasn't felt like it's included uh, black and brown people, which is why we found ourselves in this situation in relation to being Caribbean. And 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 I, and I think Britain can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, we want these new trade deals. We're going to go out and strike these new trade deals. But then actually not accept that attached to that are visas and the right to come here. And what's happened is those Caribbean leaders came over and they flexed their muscles, basically. You want to work with us, you better treat <laughs> our interest vote well. And the government's caved in for the entire Commonwealth up to 1973. So it's the... And of course, what that means is there were many who voted leave, who basically voted leave because of concerns about immigration. And they'll say it's concerns about free... free it's not. It's also concerns about immigration and the lie of course is that what will happen is immigration is going to rise across the commonwealth because you're not going to get those trade deals without those people so the very people that thought they were battening down the hatches have been sold a lie by the political establishment particularly on the right who told them that they would get an england that they're never ever going to get we aren't going back to the 1950s we can't there was um, a real attempt on monday by amber rudd when she was in the comments to just kind of quarantine the whole thing off. So it was like, here's the one area where we've had a problem. So you suggested, you know, if only we'd had access to the information earlier as if these stories hadn't been coming out for years. But to just try and lock it away so it didn't become a more sort of systematic critique of what the way the Home Office treats immigrants and the hostile environment. Is there any chance you think of spreading it out beyond just this sort of section of going, well, look, what is actually going on in the way that this department is operating? Or is the story going to stay... Well, well, I thought it was worse than what you've just said. It was Orwellian because there was a sort of caricature. Amber kept talking about the state as if she wasn't the state. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's a lot to talk about the Home Office, this sort of huge being that sort of governs our lives that we all hate that she's running. Um, And frankly, it is extraordinary. It's extraordinary because I'm quite sure had it been a Labour Home Secretary, resignations would have happened. There's no way a Charles Clark uh, uh, would have got away with this when he was running the home. Jackie Smith, they'd have gone by now. But, But you're right. Will it broaden out? I think that those 
uh, who have gone on and on about immigration turned it into a debate about targets, process, numbers, and totally such that we've lost sight of the people that lie behind it, now have to face the truth of this. Huge extortionate fees, families broken up, people de- detained and deported. That's the truth of it. And you, you uh, that's not just for those of Windrush, that's for, I think also in my constituency of Ghanaians, Nigerians, the traffic wardens, the the, the, the security guards, you know, um, a whole bunch of people treated by our nation in this way. I listened this morning um, on, on radio to two young women talking about not being able to go to university. Those are the stories that I think are now going to be revealed. And we've got to ask ourselves, is this humane? Is this the fair and tolerant country we like to think of ourselves as and I think that that so the debates are going to run and run and run partly because the journalists also have woken up to something that perhaps they weren't seeing before. And I mentioned your uh, your sort of Twitter presence earlier. A lot of MPs choose to ignore abuse, but you strike back at people who would probably describe themselves as having concerns about immigration um, with a kind of great deal of, of wit and fire. Is it is that is that sort of it's just in your nature not to take that kind of crap, or do you, or do you think that that by doing that, by publicly exposing some of the stuff you get, that that, that has a, a that has positive effect. Well, I can't stand the cowards that hide behind false names and no names, and either tweet or write the most obscene and nasty things. I have very strong feelings about the country that I want my three beautiful mixed race children to inherit. And therefore, I believe that you have to stand up to racism and prejudice. And sometimes you have to reveal the extent of that prejudice, particularly in the wakes of um, Joe Cox. Um, You have to reveal that to the wider world. And that's the opportunity that Twitter gives us. So so that's why I do it. And I sometimes think it is worth doing it with a bit of humour. Um, you know, I tend to be associated with the tougher sides of British politics, you know, uh, tough crime, gun crime, knife crime, riots, um, um, all, all housing, Grenfell, uh, yeah. immigration that, you know, <clears throat> I, no one, you know, when David Lamb is on telly, it's generally not to talk about the lighter side of life. Um, <laughs> And Kids, so, come here! Don't blame <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a blue beater moment. Uh, uh, um, so, so, for, for, so, I think uh, it, it is important every now and then to try and inject some humour um, um, into it. Partly because also I want people to see. Um, I think it's important, you know. Yes, to be authentic in 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 public life. There's a lot of spin and a lot of crap out there um, uh, coming from from you know parties, MPs, all the rest of it. Um, but but also because it's an indication, a little bit of my personality, which isn't as, even though I tend to be called on to speak on very serious subjects, I have got a sense of humour. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be talking to David in more detail later, and uh, he'll also be weighing in on the week's Brexit news. Meanwhile, an important message from Peter. Firstly, don't forget to vote for Romaniacs in the Listener's Choice category at the British Podcast Awards. The poll is open till the 17th of May, and if you vote, you could win two tickets to the event on Saturday the 19th of May at King's Place in London. Yes, the very beating heart of the metropolitan media bubble. 
Just go to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote and enter Romaniacs and tell your friends too. The best way to support Romaniacs, however, is to pledge a few pounds to us each month via the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Romaniacscast to find out how you can back us in our crusade to bring much-needed clarity and poor quality jokes to the Brexit debate. You can get Romaniacs mugs, t-shirts and tote bags too. Plus you'll get first dibs on tickets for our Romaniacs live shows. That's patreon.com slash Romaniacscast. Sign up and own the Ramon. Thanks, Peter. OK, brace yourself for this week's red-hot consignment of Brexit news. First up, will Theresa May cross her customs union red line or will MPs drag her across it? The Lords defeated the government on the EU withdrawal bill last week with a crucial amendment on the customs union. Then a total of 10 select committee chairs tabled a motion to force a vote on the customs union. As is traditional, the government is ruling out a U-turn by saying that we are leaving the customs union, but their support is looking less than rock solid. Insiders told The Guardian that if May were to make a concession, not even leading Brexiters such as Michael Gove or Boris Johnson would resign. Now, uh, are we on the verge of a thrilling compromise here? It's it's hard to see where she's going to how she's going to avoid it, really, because she has these, these two problems. So on the one hand, she has Brussels. So Brussels says, look, you've got a backstop solution here, which is the one that we know they don't like very much, which keep Northern Ireland and probably very likely by extension of that, the whole of the UK and the customs union and at least parts of the single market. So that doesn't look very good. It doesn't look like Brussels is backing down on that. In fact, they want that sorted by the summer rather than by October when you would expect it to be. In the Commons, I haven't really met anyone that thinks the government has a majority for leaving the customs union. I mean, it, it's going to be tight. I mean, there's no question about that. It could go either way. But by some distance, the consensus is that the Commons would vote to stay in the customs union. So they may be opposing it now. But on two different fronts, it's really hard to see how they can deliver on the commitments that they're making. And did you see the wording of the Downing Street statement, where it, which was supposedly the denial that there's going to be any U-turn? It, I'll just read it out. It's very brief. The position remains very clear. We don't think staying in a customs union is the right thing to do, mm. and it isn't government policy to do so. That sounds to me like we're sticking <laughs> to our line for now, but we know we might be forced. And there's been speculation, for instance, Gideon Rackman's column in the FT this week, speculate, one of the things he speculated is the idea that Theresa May knows that she can't say herself let's stay in the customs union because the Brexiters will come for her. But if, if she's dragged gently in that direction by Parliament, she has to say, oh, well, never mind. There you go. And so, so mm. suggesting that she, she knows this is going to have to happen and is just waiting for Parliament to do its job and say, stay in. She's got the other muddle, of course, which is Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, and in the end, um, you know, we can't go back to a hard border but neither will the DUP put up with a prime minister that says that somehow Northern Ireland can remain in the customs union and there's a hard border between us and Northern Ireland. So she's got problems in every which direction. It was always the case that as we head into the autumn, the rubber hits the road. Um, and Theresa May's kind of posture um, um, becomes increasingly revealed to be in the pocket of the kind of 50 maniacs in her party that want us out of the customs union. No one voted for us to leave the customs union. Very few people in Britain are raising the customs union. There are 50... I'm going to be really gentle. um, Don't be. Freaks who (laughs) who think it's a good idea for Britain to leave the customs union because we're going to strike all these deals around the world. And she will increasingly, it's like someone being sort of stretched in those old style stretches, you know, when you do sort of 15th, 16th century, she's going to be stretched as she's trying to hold what is an impossible line, basically, 
to hold. The, the launch is on quite a roll at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, I've got, I've got to be, I've got to be straight up about this, and this wins me absolutely no friends with any of the sort of liberal, lefty, metropolitan people who I like to associate with. I don't. If you spend a bit of time in the lobby in Parliament watching stuff, the Lords is not the first thing you think to reform. I have to say, I sit with Lords debates, and I usually learn quite a bit about the thing that I'm doing. I tend to think, and, and this is the bit where it gets quite dangerous, is some of the un- undemocratic elements of it contribute to the reason that it does some things quite well. For instance, the expertise it can bring, the fact that it's quite hard to professionally bribe people in the Lords in the same way that it might be in the Commons. So it's not as if you want to keep it exactly how it is. But there does have to come a point. I remember during New Labour's time, they did exactly the same thing, standing up for civil liberties over and over again on matters that they needed to stand up for. Same thing on tuition fees for a while. And you're getting it again now. And I sort of think we can only keep on saying for ages, isn't it funny how the Lords is doing this? But after sort of 15, 20 years of it, you're like, well, you know what? Maybe actually there's something about that chamber that does work even though it goes against all of the traditional assumptions as to what democratically legitimacy should look like actually one of the depressing sides of the whole post-brexit environment has been the the way in which certain institutions seem to sort of shrug their shoulders at the inevitability mm-hmm. of this suicide i've been depressed at business and industry shrugging their shoulders i've been i've been worried that institutions like our um, judiciary and courts seem to be a bit equivocal about this dangerous future that we're heading on. So it's great to see the Lords flexing their muscles with a bit more independence. And it's interesting that the independence in the Commons is absolutely nowhere near either front bench. It's again on the back benches where there's a degree of, look, this is how I see it. Uh, and we desperately, desperately need that to grow. Um, and in a sense, it's it's a sort of indication that the party politics, those dividing lines, this is a time to be suspicious and critical of parties, not to sort of toe the line. Mm. Do you also feel that, that there are enough Tory rebels to vote for continued membership of the customs union are you quite confident of that yes i think there probably is for continued members of the customs union the other side of it is you know in the end um small business has got a view on that and the tories are picking that up i think that that um shire tories close to london also will have constituents raising issues in ways that we're not fully hearing in the debate. You know, your, your average lawyer, banker, accountant coming in from Hertfordshire, coming in from 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 Surrey, really? <laughs> really? The customs union as well? <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, I, I definitely think that there is absolutely no majority for this. There is a feeling that there has to be a much softer Brexit at all if there's going to be one. And my position is that the current arrangement is exactly the one we want, by the way. Um, I forget soft Brexit. I just think the whole thing's... Madness, as I said, the day after the referendum, and I still maintain that position. Secondly, the English local elections are coming up on Thursday the 3rd of May. Last time round in 2014, Labour did well, taking control of six councils and adding 300 councillors. And UKIP, remember them, broke through into local government for the first time, taking 150 seats from Labour and the Tories. But the past is another country, the time before Brexit, Jeremy Corbyn, and when UKIP was more than a job share arrangement for unhappy businessmen. So what's going to happen this time, and will Brexit be part of the vote? Heavily Remain London is voting, and the Conservatives are expected to get a bit of a pounding despite Labour's official support for Brexit. Outside London, Labour is also expected to make gains in Leverland. And Tory MPs have been doing their damnedest to say that local elections are about the bins, not Brexit. 
Well, they both involve rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> this is the electorate's first chance to send the government a message since the the general election, which of course was a you know a curious and surprising and complicated <laughs> thing. Um, what part do you think Brexit will play in this? It's so so hard to tell. It's such a I mean, general elections are enough of a mess as it is. People's motivations in a local election is completely impossible to ascertain, especially when you get something like Brexit just overshadowing it all. Lots of the time, when you hang around with local councillors, they, they will have personal relationships with people in their local area that have helped them deal with stuff and deal with stuff that people typically really, really care about, your potholes and your yada, yada, yada. So lots of time people vote on a personal basis, other times on a party basis, other times on like the local issues, other times on something bigger like Brexit. It is a mess. However... The Tories are pursuing a really good election strategy if you want no one under the age of 55 or no one who exists somewhere outside of a field to vote for you. (laughs) So one would expect on that basis that areas like London are going to give them a good slap around. I may not like, and I very much doubt that many of our listeners like, the posture that Jeremy Corbyn has adopted on Brexit over this period. But throughout... They have been, I think, quite funny enough, quite sort of cynical and quite strategic in thinking we're always at least one step closer to remain than the Conservatives are. We're still Brexity, but we're one step closer to remain. And for most Londoners, I suspect, who don't really you know, fancy much of a go on the Lib Dems or the Greens, will probably think, you know what, that's enough. And so we'll come out of it with such a mess if you'll have a party that's fundamentally, in terms of the leadership, not the MPs really or people on the back benches and not the membership, and not the voters, nevertheless, a party that supports Brexit, getting a lot of these anti-Brexit votes. And we won't really know what went into it, how much of it was a Labour vote, how much was a vote for a councillor, how much was a vote for the issue itself. But there's also on top of that, let's say if uh, Labour doesn't do quite as well as expected in a few of the councils, it doesn't take Trafford in Greater Manchester uh, from the Conservatives, it doesn't take overall control in mm. Tower Hamlets or something like that. We'll then be left arguing, is that because... Labour leavers are annoyed at Labour for going soft on Brexit, as they would see it, or is it because Labour remainers feel Labour just isn't going far enough and that they stayed at home? We won't, we'd have to do a further set of polling, presumably, to find out mm. what it was that didn't produce enough of a Labour turnout on the day uh, in those particular boroughs. So we, we'll, we'll all be left speculating, basically. I wonder if we'll all just project our pre-existing political opinions onto I think the data. Will, <laughs> David, you, you fought a, a fair few elections, and while during your time in in Parliament, obviously, you've seen local action campaigns. Is it always the case that the results are interpreted, the tea leaves are read, you know, to basically prove the case that the individual wants to, to make? Are there a, is there any way that this would be decisive, you know, decisively read? I think these local elections are far more complex than I remember others being. My own view is that... Um, the post-referendum context permeates everything, is behind a lot, and is hard to unpick. That has been the case now for two years, and it will go on to be the case when there's a backlash against the nightmare that's to come for a few years afterwards. Mm. Let's just add a few more things into the grist here. It is definitely the case that part of the Conservative strategy is not so much to create a positive vote for them but to depress the Labour vote. It may be that um, some of the way Labour is behaving adds to that depression of the Labour vote. I do think in London that the deep concerns about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party have permeated and there are significant parts of London, certainly areas like Barnet, the Stamford Hill area of my own constituency and just a sort of feeling about Um, Labour under Jeremy Corbyn that will depress 
some of our Labour vote. And that, that I think, is also part uh, of not just some thinking on for Labour, the Labour voters, but, but clearly part of a Conservative strategy. Finally, in What Do People Really Think News? A poll of 2,000 people by the think tank Global Future. It's not a very Levy name, is it, Global Future? <laughs> no, they're not very Levy. No, no, that's what I mean. It's like, it's like a none more remain. Global Future has found that, as opposed to local past, that would be the lead thing to take, has found that when presented with each of the potential outcomes of Brexit and the costs, all groups of voters hate all of them. Global Future presented a Norway-style EEA deal, a Canada-style FTA deal, a no-deal Brexit on WTO terms and the government's preferred outcome, a bespoke deal. May's bespoke deal was the least unpopular, possibly because it's full of magic, but even that, at £615 million a week, or nearly two Brexit buses in modern money, was rejected by 77% of those polled and 72% of Leave voters. When forced to choose an option, 51% of people went for the Norway option, which would leave Britain still bound by most EU regulations. Peter, if even Leave voters prefer Norway, does that mean that whatever May delivers people just aren't going to like it. I th- I confidently hereby predict that people will keep moaning whatever <laughs> the outcome is. But I, as, you know, if we end up with the Brexit in name only, uh, at the very least, with staying in the customs union, staying in the single market, and staying in all sorts of other sensible things, I would be prepared to put up with years of moaning from leavers saying, if only we'd had a proper Brexit, the unicorns and the golden whatever would be here and everything would be wonderful. I'll, I'll put up with that, as long as we get a decent outcome. You know what's quite interesting about this polling was that they really explained to people what the consequences of all this stuff was. So often you put this, you put these <laughs> options up, people just don't know what the hell any of it means because if you're emotionally sane, you wouldn't be looking in this much detail. Even reading out that sentence, I was just like, I, ca- I can't believe, you know, with, <laughs> with all what the we do EA, now. FTA, WTO, this is not what people really want in right, their lives, right. is it? But it was, but it was yeah, at the heart of all of this stuff is a re- is is a big sort of political philosophy question, which is how much control do you want to have versus how much mutual benefit do you get by working with someone, which is exactly the same thing that you find in your own life, where you, you know, if you invite someone in to live with you in your home, you give up a certain amount of control of what you want to watch TV at night or or whatever else, or whether you want to do, you know, the washing up today or tomorrow. And what you get in exchange is you get sort of emotional reassurance and you pay the bills together. That is what it's like in human life. That is what it's like for countries. And that's at the core of what all these options are, whether it's WTO or Norway. In these cases, it was being explained to these guys what the consequences were. And even when you said Norway, no control over regulations, all of the stuff still coming from the EU, you still found that people were supportive of that option because they recognised when it was explained to them the level of economic damage that we're about to experience. Because last year, Joe Twyman at YouGov predicted to me that the Leave vote would only splinter when instead of being people being asked in polls, you know, whether they supported the idea, they were presented with these options. And then he said there was, it was likely that there was going to be no option that satisfied a majority. Does that mean, do you think, David, that whatever the final deal is, is going to be largely unpopular? Or do you think people will sort of just still rally around the idea like any Brexit as long as, it's, as, long as we're leaving? No, so, look, um, I always think it's good to look beyond your own country in these circumstances. And I think the best parallel is to speak to Democrats and Republicans about the biggest decision that that country made, which was the decision to uh, move for civil rights in 68 that Lyndon Johnson embarked on. 
Uh, and what Lyndon Johnson said at the time, and he wasn't actually that progressive, Lyndon Johnson. He was a sort of <laughs> southerner who got the job because Kennedy had been killed. He said the Democrats have lost the South for a generation. He was wrong. The, the, the Democrats had lost the South for two generations. Uh, and it's my belief that once you're presented with the options and that is laid very firmly at the door of the modern Conservative Party, they will realise, particularly with those more extreme options, that those 50 maniacs that are running the party now is not a big enough constituency in the country to actually garner a major political party. And that's the splintering. So I think Joe Joe was absolutely right. Not only was the debate not fully thought through and fully discussed and fully debated, the practical realities of the decision effectively to put immigration above economy, which is a dangerous decision, and it's always dangerous when economies do that, but the decision to put basically free movement before economy, the wrong-headed decision then comes home to roost and people have to count how much poorer they are as a consequence. And we'd have to be in fantasy land if the electorate said, I'm happy to be poorer. John Major got it right a few months ago. That reckoning is about to land. Now we're going to talk more with David Lammy, Labour MP for Tottenham and currently one of the most important voices in the Commons. David Chukramuna recently described the Commons since the last election as a, as a sort of backbenchers parliament with backbenchers doing a lot of the running and it's some of the most impactful and kind of, I think, prominent MPs across the board aren't on the front benches. Why do you think that is? I remember that hasn't always been the case. Oh, a number of reasons. The first reason is that after the referendum, um, shed loads of MPs were petrified, petrified of their electorate. There has been a... A move, you might describe it as a global move, but it's definitely a move towards, um, if you like, direct democracy. It's the kind of X factor, um, X factoring of, 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 of democracies and, 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 and less of an understanding of parliamentary democracy. The referendum was a manifestation of that. And I think a lot of members of parliament in both political parties, caught unawares, were shocked and deeply concerned to be out of line with their electorate. Um, and just lost touch with the whole business of being um, of a parliamentary democracy, which is actually, you're not a delegate. You are there on conscience. Is this in the good interests of my constituents? So I think that's one of the issues. The second issue, I think, has been clearly the the move in both political parties to move um, towards the traditional um, harder right of the Conservative Party and that tradition and definitely the 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 harder left of the Labour Party. So I think that there's a lot of action um, on the backbenches. There are strange alliances. I found myself in the days following the referendum on the phone to people like Ken Clark, uh, obviously Anna Subri and, and others, Dominic Grieve, I agree with a lot on these days. So strange alliances being forged. I think it's healthy, but clearly the kind of stasis on front benches can't continue. And what drives you to take the lead on so many of the issues you do? Is, th- is there a sense, I mean, obviously you, you care about them, but do you also feel like if you don't advance certain arguments, then maybe nobody else will? Well, Brexit was always very clear to me. Um, behind a lot of it was racism and xenophobia. Behind a lot of it was a little England understanding of the world, a harking back to an imperial past. And I'm, I've always been really clear whose side I'm on. <laughs> and I'm not on the side of Jacobs, Rees, Mogg and Nigel Farage. Um, no, no way. And I'm not the sort of, um, you know, 
unseemly charlatan type politician like a Boris Johnson who's joining in for the fun because of his own uh, to advance his own career. So that was always really clear to me, which is why I said as soon as the as the referendum was over that we have to fight this. This is madness. And I went into gear in that fight. Now, it happened at the same time. There was this sort of internal battle within the Labour Party yet again to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. So people spent six months or whatever it was doing that. Uh, there weren't many of us fighting Brexit. I think I, I know. I, I think I did an article for the New European at the time saying I felt sort of it felt really lonely. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I felt out of step with my party also because so many Northern MPs had come back and said, look, you know, this is what I did and all the rest of it. And I was just of the view, look, this is not good for working people. As night follows day, they will be poor as a consequence. So I was very clear where I stood in the ground. All of the issues I take up in Parliament are really in the end about working people. It's not always about race. Obviously, it is a lot about race because of the constituency I represent and the sorts of people beyond that that tend to want me to speak for them. But actually, if I'm challenging Oxbridge on why more kids from Richmond and Barnet are going than the whole of Sheffield, the whole of Leeds and the whole of Manchester combined, uh, that's on behalf of white working class northerners paying their taxes and funding Oxbridge but st- and their kids are getting A's but they're still not getting in so so it's working people that motivates me I was on the, the sort of on the side of it in those initial weeks I mean you, I remember you came under a lot of fire you came out and just said look just 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 not do this which at the time was sort of unsayable that you were sort of holding yourself kind of like as, as a pegged down wing of the Overton window so that sort of gave more space to others to, to say that stuff and you just brought in that criticism there was that sort of a conscious part of that strategy was that taking place at all or was I just sort of well I I always believed that there would be a journey and people would travel towards the position that I and I was right because the other thing I said was there should be a second referendum now it turns out that the language of a people's vote is much better (laughs) (laughs) that's what we say so so I will I will give I will give I I will give those that have modified that language um, uh, all credit that they're due but I knew that there would be a journey to the this position because it was just obvious on the facts that this was a load of nonsense and that's what indeed is happening the Labour Party too has been on a journey as Labour members and voters have begun to see the light and think is this really you know obviously the difficulty uh, is that I've never been personal in the way that I put my remarks I focus on the issue in front of us. I sometimes actually work on a, in a cross-party way. Some of my colleagues, clearly when people see them on TV, they believe that there is a desire to be on the Labour front bench or indeed to be running the Labour Party, and that motivates their positioning, and that's problematic. And I've tried to avoid all of that. You know, I hope people don't think when David Lammy's standing, oh, he's, doing, he's trying to get Jeremy down, he's trying to, you know, that, it, it's for that, that I try and stay away from. Well, because people, you know, it has been, obviously brought up before you know why aren't you on the front bench and I'm sure there's a lot you could do there but is there also it seems that there's there's something incredibly liberating on the back benches that obviously there's something you there's stuff you can do there that once you're bound by well well, well, let's be let's be really really clear I'm an independent minded fierce kind of guy and in any political party, if you're in a leadership role, you have to be able to put those arguments pretty fiercely internally and then settle with the line. If you're a bit clever, people kind of know where you're coming from. What I'm not is I'm, I'm, I've stopped you know, crawling up political backsides a long time ago, not interested. And so if I were on the front bench, people would know where I'm coming from. 
So let's be absolutely clear about that. And and, and so it it is the case that that, that, that on on the issue of Europe, I am not in line with the current um, Labour Party position. And we saw how Owen veered in those in those circumstances. Yeah, not not great. Um, well, we need to talk about the Labour leadership position because it is at odds with the desires of most Labour members and voters. Like every poll sort of shows that. And there are a lot of theories about what the thinking is behind this. Is it sort of, um, is it the canny triangulation? Is it sort of instinctive Euroscepticism on the part of certain people? What's your sort of explanation for this very, very slow, uh, I think we said earlier, this sort of one step ahead of the Tories, you know, one step closer to Remain than the Tories, but only one step approach. What's your interpretation? Look, I, 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 I haven't spent that much time studying the Labour position. As I said, I've got on much more with what my position is and what I believe is instinctively the right position for my electorate. But, but look, I, I think that there are a number of things going on. I think there is a Lexit position. Um, there is definitely a left-wing position that wants to leave the European Union, that sees the European Union as a corporate conspiracy, that believes that a genuinely left-wing government would be liberated to do all sorts of things like nationalise industries. Um, it's a position I'm familiar with because I am an MP in the London Borough of Haringey, uh, and and that is that there is definitely a, a constituency of, of of Labour members that would be of that view. Um, and I suspect that there are members of the front bench that are of that view. I think, but there's also when people forget when the Labour majority, uh, you know, gets smaller because we're no longer in office. Um, you know, the heartland seats that we are that we have are yes in London, but they're also in the north of England, and a lot of those seats voted to leave. Um, and so there has been a sort of holding, a holding of the position. It's shifted a bit, but it, it's a holding of the ring. The belief being that there's some electoral advantage in being able to hold both sides of the party. I guess. I think sometimes we try to be a bit clever. I've got to say, and uh, and 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 that's you know one of the critiques that comes up in terms of Keir Starmer. And I think that there's a moment where you've got to be decisive and you've got to strike out in what is in the best interest. My own view that is roundabout now because it's yeah. certainly before autumn, and so so where are we now? We're we're into April. Uh, I would hope to see further movement um, over the course of this session really from about mid-May onwards to July as Labour articulates what I think is now the position of the vast majority of Labour members in the country. Because the stop Brexit strategy as as sort of expressed by the, the, the GCG, the People's Vote campaign, requires Labour to reject the deal and to support a people's vote. How likely, you know, if Labour does not do those things, there is no chance how likely do you think that is, this, this movement that you're talking about? I haven't got a crystal ball. Um, <laughs> That's uh, why we asked you uh, on, because we thought you did. Part of the arrangement. I'm, 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 I'm so sorry. It's in the cab. I'm so, <laughs> so sorry I haven't got a crystal ball. What I can say is this. When Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party, it, it was definitely the case that the vast majority of the parliamentary Labour Party had no clue who he was, didn't know him, was not close to him. And there were a handful of us that were... Uh, close-ish to him. I wasn't as close to him as Diane Abbott for obvious reasons. But <laughs> but, 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 but Jeremy and I have, have shared a border and we've worked across that border for, for the last two decades on a lot of things. And I describe him as my friend. Genuinely, on a personal level, he is my friend. And I have watched Jeremy since winning 
Oh, sorry, God, look at that. Since doing considerably better in the general election <laughs> than, than, than was expected, I've watched his shoulders rise. I've watched him rediscover his mojo. Um, and I've watched him um, possess what, in the end, all kind of people who aspire to be prime ministers come to possess, which is that... I know it's a really dirty word on the left, but it's a degree of pragmatism that says, I want this job and I'm not going to let anything get in the way of me getting this job. My feeling is there's more to play out on Labour's position as we go. Where that will end, I cannot. I know where I want it to end. I want it to end in the place that you described, uh, this this golden nirvana that is the European Union. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, I, I, I can't control that, but I think the journey is not yet complete. I'll throw you a curveball question just to, to wrap up. Um, of course, when Britain joined the EU, essentially it turned its backs on the former colonies, on the Commonwealth. So although you're a Remainer, do you have any regret that Britain ever joined the EU in the first place? Should, did we make the wrong decision for the former colonies, for the Caribbean countries, for India and so on? Well, it was never the case that because I believe in pooling sovereignty and I believe in the merits of the European Union that it wasn't without its huge faults, I have been very concerned at the way in which the EU has gone about impoverishing, frankly, um, Caribbean countries that are trying to trade bananas, you know, food subsidies, all of that area is deeply, deeply problematic. And I do believe the EU needs much deeper reform. Um, but that said, my general view is that the deal that, that the UK ended up with, which was outside of the euro, which was a massive rebate, which was largely running the thing alongside Germany and France, but having the most amazing Atlantic relationship with the United States was the best post-war deal that Britain could have secured and indeed probably was a far better deal than anything that could have been hatched within the wider Commonwealth, in my view. And now we will, we will see, or we might see, what leaving where that leaves us. I think it's going to leave us in a very, very cold, windy place. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks to David Lamy MP. Thanks also to Peter and Ian. For our European language clip, here's a bit of German from listener Anne Bernicke. Tschüss und danke fürs gut zuhören. Now place your hands on your hearts as we play out with National Anthem, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thanks to our Patreon backers. Thanks from me to Anna Watton, Gregor McGregor, Matthew Flinton, Jonah Jones and Catherine Davis. Uh, hello and thanks from me to David Crush, Tom Coolway, Dan Dieya. Sorry about that, Dan. Almost certainly not the way you say it. Um, Sam Fetch and Tom McCool. Tom McCool, that is the best name. It's fantastic. And thanks from me to Victoria Graham, Heather Gibson, Martin Atkinson, Kurt Fricker and John Cooper. 